0: So this morning we continue our journey through Mark and we find ourselves in Mark 6 this week and you're like, oh my goodness, Mark 6. Yes, Mark 6. I know you've been looking forward to this all week long. I, my um, daughter Emma said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I was like, Mark 6? And she's like, oh, okay, cool, great. <laughs> yeah. This is what Mark 6 says, you ready? Yeah. We're going to try to keep it lively today because I know you are tired. I am too. I am really, really tired. You know when you get so tired, you're like up, you know? You get like more energy when you're so tired. But you know that when that happens, the crash is coming soon. So yes, the crash is coming soon. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's the wisdom that has been given? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Oh, that changed quickly, didn't it? Jesus said to them, only in your own hometowns, among their own relatives, in their own homes are prophets without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Okay, today has three parts. Mark 6 has three parts. Actually, it has one more than that, but we're going to do three parts. And so I want you to keep these parts, right? So this is part one. I want you to put it over here in your mind. Part one. All right, you got it? You ready? This is part two. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached to the people that the people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This is part two. Part one we had. Part two is ascending. And this is part three. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and this is the miraculous powers are at work. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claim he is a prophet, like none of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised from the dead. And then we have a flashback, an origin story right here. You know, imagine it as a movie, Herod in his mind thinking... We're Thinking back, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had bound him and put him in prison. He did this is because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. I'm reading really fast because this doesn't matter. I'm getting to the part that matters. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him would be righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Okay, now this is what's important. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Like this was a power party, right? Power party. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, shout, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. Ooh. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me the, right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went out, beheaded him John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. Wow, it's like Game of Thrones. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to the mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came in and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of God for us and all people of God. That is a lot this morning, and I apologize for that. I'm really not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. But it is a lot. So we have three parts. We have the first part where Jesus is not welcomed in his hometown. People are like, oh my goodness, you are amazing. But you're not welcome here the second part is when Jesus sends his disciples out and says basically hey y'all go out into the villages two by two two by two go out and preach the gospel part three is this weird situation with John the Baptist beheaded by Herod like what is going on these three are together they all fit together but you might ask how do they fit together this is like a sandwich of sorts this is like an Oreo and the the, that's on part one is an obstacle that you're going to face. And part three is an obstacle you're going to face. And part two is how you engage the world around you. So in part one here, Jesus is preaching and proclaiming the gospel, doing these miraculous things, teaching with authority, healing people, and everyone is amazed. But in his hometown, people are familiar with Jesus. They saw him as a kid. They saw him when he was small. They knew his dad. They knew his mom. They know his brothers and sisters. And maybe like things aren't in their family life exactly like maybe they need to be or, or, or people expect them to be. And here Jesus is. And they're like, how could this be? We knew this guy. It's like this familiarity. It's familiarity that sometimes blocks us from being able to hear what God is doing through someone else, right? But there is more to this story. Like, they are worried. This hometown is worried. And they say, who is this? And they took offense at Jesus. I believe they took offense at Jesus because they knew this work. And they figured, and they thought, and they worried, and they were afraid that the work of Jesus out in the world, this, this movement of flourishing for everyone, was going to blow back on them. They were, they were, there was gonna be consequences for them in their life because this is where Jesus is from. We are his people. And if he goes out there and makes waves and does this work, like they're gonna come searching for his family. They're gonna come searching for us. Jesus, you need to stop this madness because we're afraid. That this is going to have consequences for us. This is about, in some sense, about control. What is the opposite of control? This is a question I was asking myself this week. And I don't know. Like, I was like, what is the opposite of control? It can be different in different situations, right? There's no, maybe no direct opposite. But maybe there is, and is. I'm just not thinking of it. But, but they wanted to control Jesus. To Dictate to him what he could and could not do one of the obstacles that we face in life is wanting to control the work of God Wanting to control the way that flourishing happens, right? I mean have you ever heard the statement? well I've heard this a couple of times when you're doing something or proclaiming something or standing for justice or standing in some Situation or some social change and then somebody comes up to you and they says well, you know I don't I don't really disagree with your message. I just disagree in the way that you're doing it Oh baloney sandwiches. Just be honest. You don't agree with the message. That's the problem and that's and so you feel like you're going to lose something in this exchange and you don't want that to happen. So you blame the process rather than the outcome. Because if you were to really say, I don't want this outcome, everybody's gonna be like, well, you're not a very good person if you don't want their flourishing. And so we say, well, we don't like how you did it. We don't like that you marched in the streets. We don't like that you got mad. We don't like that you infringed upon our situation. Well, we we want your freedom too, but we just don't want you to do it that way. So just slow down and you'll get it progressively and things will change over time. Wanting to control the scenario. The second situation, so that's act one. The second is this classic sort of text of the sending out of the disciples. And Jesus basically says to his disciples, I want y'all to become a sojourner. I want you to take on the role of one who has nothing and must depend upon the hospitality of other people. All right? I want you to hold on to that one. Let's go to part three. Over to part three. Now what does the beheading of John the Baptist have to do with this whole story, with this whole thing that's going on here? I believe here that the scene is very important. Where was King Herod at? Where was King Herod? He was at a dinner party. And who was there? All the powerful people. King Herod was having a a dance party with the most powerful people in the land. And what does it say when the girl asked him for the head of John? He didn't what? He didn't want to disappoint his guests. And so he took the life of another person who was bringing goodness to the world because he didn't want to disappoint his dinner guests that's ridiculous isn't it but this it shows is the two scenarios the two cookie crisp outsides of the cookie are one about society wanting to control the movement and the other how powerful people arbitrarily arbitrarily make decisions removed from the scenario of real life that have damaging and death-filled consequences for the world. King Herod was not a nice guy. He was not a wonderful person. He was an awful, ugly leader. His leaders around him were probably most likely awful, ugly leaders who did not make decisions based on the welfare of the people, but put their own interests above everyone else. And so here at this dinner party, they are making a decision arbitrarily disconnected from a reality of people's lives about people's lives these are the two forces you are going to face in the world one your friends and family and networks are going to disagree with the what you are doing in this work and are going to try and try to control you in whatever way they can the ec- the other part is socially the people in power are going to oftentimes make decisions that hurt your life and in the middle We we come to the call. What is the call? The call is go out into the world and proclaim this message of grace and peace to everyone. Take nothing with you. Depend, (laughs) I love this, depend upon the hospitality of those who will accept you. And when you do that, when you accept and rely upon the hospitality of the people around you, you will understand what it means to be a sojourner. You will understand what it means to have to depend upon the hospitality of other people. And what will you do? You will probably in turn be a hospitable person because you have had to depend upon it. Now, lots of times we see this message, we see this scripture, and we will immediately preach about, hey, you need to go out into, God is sending you out into the world in the midst of these two in bookends. These two pieces of bread sandwich. And you're in the middle. You're the bologna in the middle. So go out and proclaim this message. I want to I turn this a little bit. Can we turn it a little bit? Turn it a little bit? To something maybe a little more, because that's overwhelming. Right? That, that can be overwhelming. God's sending me out with just sandals and a shirt. I don't even own a pair of sandals. Like, I'm going to have to go get a pair of sandals. And like, what am I going to wear? And like... Oh, where, where am I gonna go? This is this is weird, right? And and we can get lost in those details. So I want I wanna I wanna turn it. Maybe that's not for everybody to go out and do this proclaiming work in the world and to cast out evil spirits and to heal people. Maybe that's maybe that's not your um, maybe that's not your jam right now. But you can be people who are hospitable, right? You can, what, what does it look like? The disciples had to depend upon the hospitality of a bunch of people to do their work. And so I think like, this is a beautiful calling as well. One that is sort of hidden in here. One that we have to pull out a little bit. Like, Maybe your calling also is to be people who open up your lives for the work of God's people. For the work of, the wor- for the work of God to take place in the world. Maybe you can be a hospitable person. Person, a hospitable house. Maybe God is calling you to be a safe house, to be a safe person, to be one to say, come on in, y'all. Come on in. You can use me, you can use this place as your base camp. I think there's so much to this. I think there is so much life into this radical hospitality. I loved um, the, the Benedict rule. I, I, I was reading this book a little bit this week. On um, it, It's called Radical Hospitality. It basically takes the rule of St. Benedict. Who St. Benedict was this monk who formed this whole line of monks in this whole way of being a monk. And it's called the, the way of St. Benedict, the rule of St. Benedict. And it says, all guests who present themselves in sort of rule book are to be welcomed as Christ, for he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Once a guest has been announced, the superior in the community are to meet the guest with all the courtesy of love. And then in the introduction of this book, it says this, Hospitality is at the heart of Christianity. No one has ever been more radically welcoming than Jesus, who was always accused of associating with the wrong kind of people, people we wouldn't want in our living rooms or next to us worshiping. The phrase radical hospitality refers to the activities and desires that inspire individuals and communities to welcome those who are unlike themselves. Rather than viewing any person in terms of how they benefit us... Radical hospitality means accepting the person with no thought of personal benefit. Rather than viewing any person in terms of how they benefit us, radical hospitality means accepting the person with no thought of personal benefit. Instead of seeking persons who will support the congregation or our lives, actively seek persons who need the support of the congregation or our lives. To become hospitable means finding ways to welcome the marginalized, forgotten, and misunderstood among us. In addition to our fears, we have become a culture with more disdain and indifference than ever before. Today, human kindness often seems under siege. In the midst of this, some of us are looking for ways to grow more hospitable. Regardless of where our search may take us, it must begin for all with a turning inside and a ruthless self-evaluation. Will I be part of what God is doing through other people by opening up what I have and offering it to the world around me? Because the world is hurting. The world is starving. The world needs people. They need churches who have this hospitable heartbeat, this hospitable spirit to say, I I don't care what you do, what you believe, what you think about the world. I am going to love you. I'm going to be a safe space for you. Maybe maybe in the midst of this world, we don't feel comfortable being sent out to to fight the battle of the gospel, to, to, to cast out evil spirits, to heal the sick. But I believe that all of us are called to be hospitable people. To be on a hospitable church. To open up our lives, our homes, our bank accounts, our whole lives for the world around us. How can I be a benefit for you? I was thinking about how, how seven steps to be hospitable or just like seven points that I thought about when we talk about hospitality. And I think, I think the first starts in this. A commitment to to being a place and a person of refuge. A commitment to where being a person where people feel safe. I think that's kind of been the heartbeat of this congregation, of this church. Of like, we're going to be committed to be a safe space for everyone regardless of whatever. You're going to come into this space and you are going to be safe. You're safe here. No matter what. No matter what you've been through. No matter, no ma- no matter what, if, you're, if you believe in God or if you don't believe in God. If you are this or if you are that or you believe this or if you believe that. It, it doesn't matter. You're going to be safe here. So come on, let's be a place of refuge, let's be a place of safety, let's, it's symbolically sort of open our pews, and we got got plenty of room right now, right, right, like open our pews and say, you can rest here, we are going to be your people, and we are going to supply your needs, and we are going to be there for you, to be a safe house. Can your life be a safe house for people, where people can be a refuge? Find refuge. I think second is this. It goes, it flows from the first. And the second is resist the urge to say, resist this urge, okay? Resist this with all your might. Resist the urge to say, I don't agree with what you're doing. Resist that urge. That never helps. Do you think anybody ever really makes a decision based on your opinion of what they agree with or not? Most people don't. This this can be so damaging to other people. I see it so often in like family dynamic relationships, right? Where we're a child who grows up and now is making their own decisions and is making a decision that the parents don't like and the parents are like, "Well, I don't agree with this." Like that never helps. It never helps, ever. When, when people in a congregation, in a community, look at some actions that another person is having, their decisions, when they say, well, we don't really agree with this. It doesn't help. It just drives people away. It makes people feel unsafe. It makes people feel, feel condemned and judged. It makes people feel like, you don't care about me. You just care about my decisions. What about me? do you see me? Do you know why I'm making this decision? Do you know why I feel this way? But we often don't investigate that, do we? We just say, well, I don't agree with that. It's funny. I was thinking on the way over here this morning. It's funny. I was thinking, what, what, what is it exactly that people don't agree with? It's usually human relationships, right? Some person makes a decision about some relationship and then the people around them be like, well, I don't agree with what you're doing usually we don't say to people about their investments do we that you're investing in fossil fuels and you're making a lot of money on it most of us don't be like well i don't really agree with or you know we're we're working for a developer who's gentrifying half of raleigh most people don't be like well i don't really agree with it's about human relationships right i was thinking about this guy um Carl Linz, you don't know that guy in New York and the megapastor and Hillsong and he had he was a big big guy and friends with Justin Bieber and he had an affair and, and like everybody was just so rocked by his affair, which yeah, I mean it's no good. It's not it's not good, man. But like I back up and I'm like, why weren't y'all upset about what this guy was teaching all, all those people? Why weren't why weren't we collectively as a society, society upset that he was preaching a condemning God? who wanted to destroy the people who didn't look like or act like or or think like him. Like, that to me is the problem. Like, why are we upset at that? Because everything's about human relationships. I think we need to resist this urge to say, I don't agree with you. Maybe someone instead ask this and these questions. You ready? Write this down. When someone is doing something that you don't agree with, that you're like I don't feel comfortable with this. I'm not sure about this. Maybe ask these questions. Why is this important to you? I really want to know why. Like what? How how do you feel? How can I support you? Wow. If when people around us that we cared about and loved made hard decisions that maybe we don't agree with, and instead of telling them, I don't agree with what you're doing, because that's a system of control, that's us trying to control them, first thing, remember, Jesus in hometown, we don't agree with what you're doing, we don't agree with how you're doing it, maybe we should say, how can I support you? What support do you need from me right now? And even maybe we are really struggling with that and we really have a hard time with it and we got to grind our teeth and be like, this is going to be really hard, but I love this person and I'm going to support them. That's hospitality. That we give up control and we embrace support. Third, that we'd be committed to listening deeply. Listening deeply to people that we open up our lives for. Come on in. Listen deeply to them. Maybe people that we disagree with. What can I learn about the world from you, from this person who's different? What's more important? What's most important to you? What if we ask people that question? What's most important to you? How can that be important to me? What are your dreams? Oh, don't you love that when somebody asks you? Tell me about your dreams. And how can I help you achieve them? Like that's hospitality, isn't it? Like when we open up our lives and our hearts and we say, tell me about your dreams. I want to hear about them. And then, and then they tell us and be like, how can I help you achieve them? Wow. Like, what if we did that? What if, we, what if that was our like evangelism method? That we just went out into the world and be like, tell me your dreams. How can we as a church help you? Yes amen, like people would be like, I want to, where did you come from? <laughs> and, and who taught you this? Because I want to know more about this God of yours that wants, is interested in my life and is interested in supporting my dreams. Wow. That's really cool. Usually people of faith are like, God doesn't want you to do that. Stop doing that. <laughs> right? What if you're like, yes, how can I support your dreams? Number four, gratitude. So, we listen deeply and we're grateful for people that we are willing to see new things you are thankful for in another person. Like, sometimes we see the things we disagree with first, right? Like, that's the first thing we see. Like, I disagree with you on this. But maybe, what if we were like resisted that urge and we were, we said, What am I, look, oh wow, I see this thing about you and I'm so thankful for it. It is beautiful and good. You might have to work hard at that. You may have to listen really deeply. You may. it's going to take some work, but we can see. And once you begin to be grateful for somebody, you open your life up to them in a new way. You see them as a gift. Number, number five, notice your programming. Like our brain, our brain always fears things that are different from us, right? Always. That's the first thing our brain goes to be like, fear, it's different. Watch out. It could kill us. Like, okay, like, let's, let's, let's reclaim our brains. Be like, okay, this is not going to kill us. This other person is not going to kill us just because they believe something different than us. Okay, cool. We got that straight brain. All right. Now, brain, we are going to invest in them. We're going to ask them questions about their life. We are going to become familiar with them. Because you know what happens when we're familiar with people? We're no longer afraid of them. So our brains need to do the work. we got to do the hard work to reframe our brains and be like, when we meet somebody we we disagree with or is different from us, we're immediately going to be afraid of them. But once we get to know them a little bit, we're not going to be afraid of them anymore. And our brain's going to be like, oh, cool, this is not scary anymore. You you may proceed. But that that beginning point is going to be really difficult. We're going to have to work at it. Number six, be open to inconvenience and surprise. What if we were open to be inconvenienced in our lives? When, when somebody brought something into our life that we were, didn't want to happen, that we didn't expect that would happen, instead of getting mad and angry and pushing it out, we were like, whoa, maybe this is God working in this situation. Or maybe it is or isn't God working in that situation. But maybe because of my response to it, it can be an opportunity where God works in and through it. So we're willing to be inconvenienced, and we're willing to be surprised. I think maybe that's the opposite of control, is a willingness to be surprised. Like we don't, we're not trying to control everything. We're open to the awe of creation, and A-W-E, All I'm Southern, wow, I can't say that word. I don't even know how to say that word correctly. I just say awe, it's like awe, awe. I just said three different words. They all sounded the same, didn't they? Never mind. That we're willing to be surprised at what God is doing in the world. Look at it and be like, wow, I get to be part of that. God brought this person into my life that I didn't expect. And maybe I don't agree with That I don't even really like right now. But I'm surprised. God is moving in at work. And number seven, don't be the victim of someone else's story. Don't be the victim of somebody else's story. I love this, and I'm, I'm winding down here. I know it's long and y'all are tired, but um, Jonathan Sachs says this. I love this. Can you, can you, can you deal with this? this can, you, can you, yes? Okay, good. Doesn't matter. I'm gonna read it anyway. The first and most important principle is this. This is talking about a nation, but I think we can talk about it as a, our people, right? Like, can we be a hospitable nation? Wow, yeah. That's something. The first and foremost, most important principle is this. A nation cannot worship itself and survive. Sooner or later, power will corrupt those who wield it. If fortune fortune favors it and it grows, it will become self-indulgent and eventually decadent. Its citizens will no longer have the courage to fight for their liberty, and they will fall to another, more Spartan power. If there are gross inequities, the people will lack a sense of the common good. If government is high-handed and non-accountable, it will fail to command the loyalty of the people. None of this takes away your freedom. It's simply, it is simply the landscape which, which freedom is to be exercised. You may choose this way or that, but not all paths lead to the same destination. Okay, this is good. To stay free, a nation must worship God, worship something greater than itself, God. Something with the belief that all human beings are created in God's image. Self-worship on a national scale leads to total totalitarianism and the extinction of liberty it looks the law it took the loss of more than 100 million lives in the 20th century to remind us of this truth in the face of suffering and loss there are two fundamental different questions an individual or nation can ask and they lead to quite different outcomes the first is this what did i or we do wrong the second is who did this to us it is not an exaggeration to say that this is a fundamental choice governing the destinies of people. The latter leads inescapably to what today is known as victim culture, it locates the source of evil outside of oneself. Someone else is to blame. It is not I who is at fault, but some external cause. The attraction of this logic can be overpowering. It generates sympathy. It calls for and often evokes compassion. It is, however, deeply destructive. It leads people to see themselves as objects, not subjects. They are done to, not doers. Passive, not active. The results are anger, resentment, rage, and a burning sense of injustice. None of these, however, ever leads to freedom, since by its very logic, this mindset abdicates responsibility for the current circumstances in which one finds oneself. Blaming others is the suicide of liberty. Wow. Blaming oneself, by contrast, is difficult. It means living with the constant self-criticism. It is not a route to peace of mind, yet it is profoundly empowering. It implies that precisely because we accept responsibility for the bad things that have happened, we also have the ability to chart a different course in the future. Within the terms set by covenant, the outcome depends on us. That is a logical geography of hope, and it rests on the choice Moses made in in this bigger One of the most profound contributions Torah made to civilizations was this, that the destiny of nations lies not in the externalities of wealth or power, fate or circumstance, but in moral responsibility. The responsibility for creating and sustaining a society that honors the image of God within each of its citizens, rich and poor, powerful and powerless alike. A nation that sees itself as responsible for the evils that befalls it is also a nation that has an inextinguishable power of recovery and return. Wow. I love that. I hope, you got, I hope, hope that made some sense to you because I believe that is sort of this place like like we can be the first people who looked at jesus and said like what are you doing here and we try to control it and we see it and we take on the victim's role like you're going to bring something bad to us or we can be like king herod who make decisions root, completely derooted out of the lives of people we make them in power We make them in order to impress people and and people suffer. But the real place of the church and the real place of the people of God is in that middle hospitable place. The place of being a sojourner. The place of going out and bringing flourishing. But also opening our homes and our lives to be safe places for the work of flourishing in the world. That's what we are called to do and in that place to open up our hearts that our hearts are hospitable that we look deep within inside ourselves and say where is there anger within me where am I blaming other people Where? What is my fault here? How can I change? How can I be a safe place? How can I listen to others? How can I empower people's dreams? How can I be surprised? How can I live a life open to inconvenience? How can I practice radical hospitality for the world that is in desperate need of safety and hope and rest? believe it's in that middle space y'all and whether we are sent out to battle the, the, the the injustices of the world or whether we are simply called to open up our lives to be safety for those that are that's the work of flourishing radical hospitality leads to love and love leads to life always today what's God calling you to do How can you open up your lives and your hearts to be more hospitable to the world around you? How can you be a safe place? How can you listen to others more? How can you push off control and be open to surprise? How can you resist the urge to say, I don't agree with that, resist that urge, friends, and maybe say instead, how can I support you? What are your dreams? And how can I help you meet them? Let's be hospitable. Let's be a hospitable, safe church, and let's be a hospitable, safe people for the hurting and desperate world around us. That, I believe, is what Jesus is sending us out into the world to do. Let's answer that call, friends. The world needs us to be that people. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for communion Lord God of heaven and earth, we give you thanks and praise for this day and for your grace. Thank you for this word of hope and life that you bring to us from ancient texts, Jesus. Help us, we pray, be a more hospitable people. Help us, we pray, to be a people who bring life and hope to the world, help us to be people who resist the fears that our culture is giving us, who look deeply into our own hearts, who refuse to blame others, but are people who welcome others instead of blaming others, who believe that all people are created in the image of God and that you are working to empower the flourishing of every person. Help us to do that too, Lord. Help us to partner in your work of hope and redemption and life. God, we give you thanks today. Use us, we pray. Open our lives so that we may be safe spaces for the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.